As we continue our study of Matthew's Gospel, our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge over to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. And truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid every last penny. You've heard it, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again you have heard it said of those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our study of Matthew, and as we are going through, at this uh, point, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it seems like there's multiple back-to-back themes. And I want to encourage you to uh, recognize that Jesus is not just quickly shifting themes. He's actually building on one theme. So if we zoom out before we, you know, lose the forest for the trees, we, we recognize that he's calling... Uh, this audience of his followers into this life that is congruent with those who have turned to the saving grace of God, trusting in God, and he's now describing uh, the life of those who uh, love God. And so as he's building on these themes, he's touching on all kinds of things that are, are already going on in the culture. I just want to remind you quickly that the, the, the process that Matthew records here is that Jesus passes through water, and then he goes into the wilderness, and now he's on a mountain delivering the commands of the law. And this reminds us of Moses in the Old Testament who passed through the waters, who went into the wilderness, and who is now standing on a mountain, uh, who was standing on a mountain declaring the commands of the law. So Jesus is fulfilling something intentionally. And the more that you recognize these sort of intricacies that are there to get us to see that Jesus is a greater Moses, um, there's a beautiful depth that's realized. Right now there is a show that's streaming called uh, Rings of Power. It's this backstory to the Lord of the Rings story. Well, the more you know the lore, the more that show is exciting. Now, conceivably, anybody could turn it on and be entertained by it and say, oh, that's an interesting show and I like that. But if you don't really understand all the nuances of lore and all of the characters, you're not going to nearly glean as much out of it. And Jesus 
knows the Lord. So he is intentionally packing the Sermon on the Mount with all of these Easter eggs that everybody, that first audience, would have been like, oh, wait a second, this is some familiar lore. Now, granted, I need to... You know, I haven't read all of the Lord of the Rings, so I don't appreciate the full depth of the lore because I, I can't read it, you know, 800 pages, you know, just of Max before you get to. So that's why I haven't read all of it. But Jesus understands the depth of, of God's law and he's bringing it out and showing uh, in all of its uh, wisdom, in all of its love. Because really what he's doing is he is putting the metaphor that we looked at last week when he says you're salt and light. Salt has a loving and preserving effect. Light is not shining on itself, but cascading to show the beauty of something else. And then he ends uh, that portion of, this, uh, of the text before this, which we talked about last week, by saying, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Well, this portion of scripture we just read is him starting to flesh out what that righteousness looks like. There's three things we'll look at this morning, three commitments that are really mark... Um, the lives of those who love God and are followers of Jesus. There's a commitment to unity in the faith community. Uh, Secondly, there's this commitment to sexual purity. Then he talks about a commitment to preserving marriage and family. And then lastly, a commitment to vocational integrity. So I want to point out how bold Jesus is being about all of this, by the way. Because there's a, a number, there's four times in each of these four sections where he says, you've heard it said, You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. And then four times he says, but I say, but I say, but I say, but I say. And that is shockingly bold because at the time Jesus is saying this, nobody had their own personal copies of the scrolls. Very few few people could read. So you had to rely on the interpretation of the religious leader to tell you what God's law was saying and asking of you. And so the way in which this was done was you would study under a religious teacher and you would follow so closely along their interpretations of the law and sort of have your life formulated by that religious leader and then you would become a disciple. And that's what that looked like. And so Jesus is actually very boldly saying, I need to show you there's a disconnect between human tradition and divine intent. I am going to tell you what God's law requires with no commentaries. Bold. Powerful. Amazing. Deep. Every time I get up here and teach, anytime any minister stands up to teach, we are standing on the shoulders of many commentaries. Historical commentaries, uh, Greek and Hebrew linguistic commentaries, uh, various other uh, theological commentaries, nuancing possible interpretations of texts. If you fact-check my sermon, you can fact-check all my sermons by doing historical research and looking at what uh, experts uh, and scholars say on various things. Say, did Paul just conceive of this? If I ever stood up here on a Sunday morning and said, you have heard it said, but I say, and then I give some interpretation of Scripture that can be found nowhere, that would be a, a severe problem. So let's look at it. First, You've got this commitment to unity in the faith community. And in verse 21 and 22, he's talking about this anger and equating, in a a way that we can't imagine, anger with murder. 
And it's not that he's, he's not obviously equating the consequence of being angry and of, being, uh, and of murder as the same, but he's pointing that the cause, the sin at the core, the guilt of it is actually the same. He's in all of four examples as we break down this text, he's taking the externals of the law and he's going deeper. And he's saying actually what God is after is a, a, a purity in the heart that goes beyond religious ritual. And this is what's being required. And we, we've revisited this many times and we will revisit it many more times as he's attacking the disconnect in, between the religious leaders and the actual heart of God. And you recognize, uh, as you sort of unpack this, that the Pharisees and Jesus have two different interpretations of the law, two different interpretations of righteousness, which have inevitably led to two very different messages to the culture. Right? The Pharisees have a definition of the law and of righteousness that formed their message to the culture, and the Pharisees' message to the culture was... I disapprove of you. Jesus had an interpretation of the law. Jesus had an interpretation of righteousness. And Jesus, being God incarnate, had a message for the culture. And Jesus' message, as he went around from place to place, was not, I disapprove of you. His message was, I love you. I am unapologetically calling repentance from you. Because my mission and my intent is to renew you. This is why we call the gospel good news. Jesus didn't go around capitulating the culture saying, I'm good with whatever, whatever you guys are up to. I'm fine with it because I'm a God of love and love means no borders, no parameters, and I'm okay with all of your ethics. That was never Jesus' message. But Jesus' message was never an, a, a tour of anger. He wasn't on angry tour. He would speak of, of, of judgment and even of this text we just read, judgment and hell without apology, because what Jesus was actually offering was life eternal. Or as the scholars would, would translate it more literally, life unto the age. Jesus was going around saying, there's a way in which you are living and orienting yourself around this present moment that you live in. And I'm calling you to unravel your heart and your mind from these small little gods and worship me so that I can give to you renewal and true flourishing. And so it is interesting that with the Pharisees, all anybody ever got was condemnation. All anybody ever got was anger. The only message anybody ever got from the Pharisees was, I disapprove of you and your lifestyle. But all they ever got from Jesus was compassion. I mean, Jesus was so in love with the sinner, he was called a friend of sinners. He was accused of many things because of his deep love and care for those who did not love God or know God. So Jesus has an interpretation of the law and of righteousness that is actually goes far deeper than the Pharisees did, but it actually works out in a compassion that the, that the religious leaders never even knew. Not because Jesus went around winking at sin, but because it went deeper. And so he's calling, firstly, uh, the people of God to this commitment to unity in the faith community. And he calls them on this anger rumbling in the heart. And he, he equates it to murder. And there is, of course, an anger that's godly and appropriate. But that's not this anger. You see this anger in, listed in verse 22. And in the Greek, it's, uh, the term is uh, orgazamos. And, uh, sorry, orgazamenos. And orgazamenos was like a brooding, festering kind of anger. So that's not a godly anger that's angry at the right things. This is like this brooding uh, to borrow from Craig Bromberg, uh, who's a historian, he would say, this is an anger that seeks vengeance. 
It refuses to be pacified. So if you're seeking vengeance like a brooding Batman, just waiting for a reason to unload your vengeance, this is what Jesus is saying. This is a problem. This can't exist in the, in the faith community. That's why he's using all the way through brother, 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 brother. Right? He's not a literal brother. Uh, it could, I mean, it could be a literal brother, but in the context Jesus is using it, it's, he's very intentionally speaking to community, community of God followers by using that language of, of uh, brother. And so then he uses this uh, Arabic slang, raka, whoever calls their brother raka, which is difficult uh, translators say to translate because it's more of a tone and a, and a cuss word almost than it is a, it's a, it's a whole vibe. And Jesus uses that word on, on purpose to say there's a major disconnect here. You can't possibly be a lover of God and be relating to people in this way. And so he's calling for this unity in the community. Now, um, this teaches us again that Jesus is much more interested in reconciliation than religious motions. That's why he goes on to say, listen, if there's a problem in the faith community, you don't just go through the religious motions and say, God's happy. I come to church, I go through the liturgy, I read the prayers, I sing the hymns, I have the confession, but then I come and I leave Redeemer and I still have this festering offense towards somebody else. He says, leave your gift at the altar. In, in church history, traditions would do this. They would do something called passing the peace. Uh, after confession, they would pass the peace. And, it, and they would turn to one another and they would say, peace be with you. And then the person sitting next to you would say, and with you. And that was intentionally put in the services to say, if you have an offense with somebody, now's your chance to go find them, shake their hand, look in their eye, and just say to them, peace be with you. And they would say, and with you. And it's a way of acknowledging, hey, you know what? Let's have a coffee this week. We got a, our relationship is tense and we have to work this thing out. Right? We have a, we have a form of that and greeting one another. But uh, it, would, you know, it would be fine and appropriate for you to do that. You could go, we don't use that phrase, peace be with you, though it would be fine to do that and with you. But also it's a, it's a time in the service to, hey, how's it going? And it's also like this moment where people can historically say, hey, listen, can we connect for coffee this week? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Great, good. Because then you can come to the Lord's table. You've confessed your sin. You have an intention to walk out unity in community. Let's move on to the second thing. He then shows that there is this commitment to sexual purity. And this is this call that he's, again, wanting the people who are loving God and following him to be very separate from the culture and sexual purity. And it looking like relating to each other in a posture of love that gives and not a posture of lust that consumes. Because then he unpacks this image of a consuming fire. When he, when he talks about the, he says in verse 28, if, if someone looks on a woman, and Jesus uses this uh, cultural example, He's locating the lust and the desires back to the heart, right? The fixation of the eyes. This isn't like a passing glance where you're admiring somebody's beauty in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, just a very human and wonderful, godly way. Wow, what a beautiful person. And you move on with your life. The phrase Jesus uses is like this, this uh, persistent, lustful gaze. This use of the imagination to consume somebody. And so when he uses the term sexual immorality... The Greek word there is pornea, which of course is where we get porn, pornography, pornea. It's just a very broad term, meaning that you are consuming someone for your sexual pleasure. And so there's this consuming sort of disintegrating effect of humanity that Jesus is pointing at here, 
recognizing that our imagination, you know, of course, this is a God-given gift. And so whatever we're doing to feed that imagination is of maximum importance. And Jesus, though he was tempted in all ways, uh, just as we are, Hebrews uh, 4 says, Jesus had to endure temptations. But Jesus, being fully God and fully human, uh, he shows us through his life and the way that he related to women, um, God's new humanity, uh, the, the humanity calls us all into as he's relating to women uh, throughout his ministry without a sense of consuming and self-gratification. Right? He sees every woman as a daughter or as a sister or as a beloved. And so he was treating women as these beautiful gifts worthy of tender respect. And so after he says, listen, don't give yourself to pornea, which can be any form of sexual gratification and consuming um, in a way that is not giving dignity to people. And so he uses that phrase. And, and then he says, or you're in danger of hellfire. The fire is this metaphor, this thing that consumes and disintegrates. And hell, and uh, again, using, going back to the original language, he says, uh, the fire of Gehenna. And Gehenna was this, um, this valley south of Jerusalem where they would burn bodies of, you know, burn bodies of people who had died who had no family or they were, you know, uh, rejects of society and so they had no, no one was going to bury them. They would burn bodies. They would burn garbage in the field of Gehenna. And the field of Gehenna was known as this perpetually burning fire dump uh, in sort of first century um, uh, Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, if you're going around consuming people with pornea, you're liable to this disintegration, this hellfire. And so very quickly, for those of you who are visiting us, uh, this is your first Sunday in church, and you're like, oh, wow, my first Sunday visiting church, and we're into hellfire. The fires of hell is not, is not, is not literal. It's not, we don't, Christians don't believe, well, some do, but here at Redeemer, I'm not trying to teach you that there's this literal place with literal flames. What I'm teaching you is that there is a literal suffering. There is a literal disintegration of the soul that after we die, even though I can't comprehensively explain, you know, here's what hell is because the Bible specifically defines it this way. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. And he talks about it in the context of this sort of curved in, self-serving, disintegrative, disintegrating sort of trajectory of the soul. And if you find someone who is curved in on themselves, whether it's sexually or in anger or through trauma or through... If we're curved in and we remain curved in and we spiral inward, we would describe that kind of life as hell even now. So what the Bible teaches is that if we do not turn to God and turn to Jesus and his saving grace, what he is promising is that in the end is not the grave and death and hell. This eternal trajectory of being the soul curved inward, there is in the, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this bodily resurrection, the, resurrect, uh, the restoration of the earth and the resurrection of our bodies just as Christ's body was uh, resurrected. The hope of Christian faith is that in the end, uh, we are saved from the eternal disintegrative state of Gehenna. So Christians believe that in the end, the world will be restored, our bodies will be restored, we will, we will live in the glory of God and we will cultivate flourishing and humanity in the world as God intended at the beginning. We will use our gifts and our abilities for his glory. We, the, the restoration in Revelation is a picture of what God intended in Genesis. That's what we believe. And so, what, so the message of Jesus is not just going around and saying, I'm disappointed in you. I disapprove of your life. I disapprove of your life and you're all going to hell. 
the, the context of him talking about hell is, I'm actually trying to save you from a soul disintegration. If you relate to people sexually like they're objects to be consumed, your soul will erode. This is not the humanity that God designed for you. It will, it, it will have a disintegrating effect. And he goes on uh, to sort of give that metaphor for that. And he uses this really heightened, exaggerated language in verse 29 of, if it's your eye that's causing it to sin, cut it off. If it's your hand, cut it off. And he's quite clearly not being literal. He's quite clearly not endorsing mutilation. What he's getting at is, it's, it, uh, whatever you've got to cut out of your life that is disintegrating your soul... Cut it out of your life. Because whatever that disintegrating force is that's causing you to sort of habitually orient yourself around it in an uncontrollable, appetitive, consuming state, this is robbing you of the life of true flourishing, of a liberation of the heart and of the mind that God calls you to as his child when you curve out in, in flourishing and in love for him. He's calling us those of us who follow Jesus Christ, to have a posture of love that gives and not of lust that consumes. And then he moves on very quickly to this commitment of uh, preserving the marriage and the family. And this is where he speaks against what's going on culturally with divorce. This is now calling us into this posture of self-emptying instead of self-gratification. A call for all of those who happen to be married to be committed to covenant. Before I unpack this, I will say quickly that in this room we have divorce. Some, some are, uh, have been on the receiving end of divorce, something that you uh, were trying within your means to be peaceable and to restoration, and, but the marriage ended in divorce. Or some of you look back on your past and perhaps you're in a different place in terms of your maturity or even your faith walk and uh, you instigated divorce. Regardless of that, God's grace stretches further than all of our sin. His forgiving grace transcends anything and everything that any of us have done in contrary to his word. And so for you, you could walk in freedom and hope and joy with a newfound commitment to living to the glory of the one who saved you in grace, knowing that your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus uh, gets into this conversation about divorce, he condemns the religious religious leaders because at that point in history, it was absolutely frivolous and ridiculous. As you know, in the ancient world, for women, marriage was an economic prospect. I mean, there was no way for a a woman in in a... in, a, uh, in an ancient world context to just say, I'm just going to go out and be an entrepreneur and do my own thing. I mean, the, the entire world uh, at that stage in human history was just not operating that way. So the Bible is not justifying any of these things or making excuses for these things. It's dealing with the world as it was. And so way back in Deuteronomy 24, God makes a provision for divorce, even though God hates divorce, but he understands the limitations of the human heart, and he limits divorce to unfaithfulness. By the time you get to this point in history, there were actually scholars at, during the time of Jesus, who, again, born from uh, Craig Blomberg, a historian, who were debating on the reasons in which somebody could divorce people. And there are historical records, documents found of, of, marriage, of, sorry, of divorce certificates on the basis of, you know, the food was burnt 
the, the meals are not prepared well. Divorce. Ludicrous. Ludicrous oppression of women. Terrible and ungodly uh, way of relating. And this had all sort of, though it was normal culturally, it had seeped into the people of God really relating to marriage in the same way. So Jesus comes to limit uh, the, the unfaithfulness. But the, but the point of this is not that he's just saying, I'm going to make, Jesus is not just saying, hey, let me make a quick comment on divorce here. In the grand scheme of the, in the, grand scheme of the Sermon on the Mount, he's just calling the people of God to be people of promise and of covenant. In God's word, God himself called Hosea, one of the prophets, to marry a prostitute as a sign of God's heart towards the sinner. Here is the prostitute going back into the city to do her thing. And here is the prophet going and chasing her and weeping and crying and bringing her back and bringing her back and bringing her back. And God says, that's me. That's me. That's my heart for the sinners. In the book of Jeremiah, God says, I am married to the backslider. This is how God relates to marriage. And so he's calling us to relate to, uh, for, those, for those of us who happen to be married, relating us to, uh, calling us to relate to our marriage as people of real covenant and care. You must relate to marriage differently than the surrounding culture. We absolutely must on the basis of understanding God's forgiveness and grace and his chasing after of us. May that uh, be something that is prevalent and found uh, in our marriages. We'll move on to uh, the final thing is this commitment to vocational integrity. This vocational integrity that enables good witness in the city. You look at verse 37 and sort of encapsulates this call to the integrous life by saying, let your yes be yes. And he's got all these condemnations about oaths. And there's a reason that Jesus does that. And and, and again, getting back to the lore and Jesus understanding the lore. um, Jesus says, hey, don't swear by, you know, heaven or by Jerusalem or by the earth or by your own head. And Jesus isn't just randomly picking things. They actually had a hierarchy of oaths back in the ancient Mishnaic tractate, the Shabaoth. Well, if you swear against God, that's the most binding. But if you swear against your own head, it's less binding than if you swear against God. And the whole thing is a commentary on their lack of integrity. And Jesus, that's why Jesus says it's better you don't swear by anything. If you, if you have to swear by God and swear by this and swear by the other thing, this is an announcement that you lack integrity. This is an announcement that you can't make commitments. This is an announcement you're committed to your own freedom, you're committed to your own loophole, than you are to just making a commitment and then keeping the commitment. And so that's why Jesus speaks so strongly against this. He says, this is not salt and light. This is not a pervasive, loving way of engaging the culture. This is no, not a good witness to the city. You've got to have vocational integrity. And so this provokes us, I think, as just the people of God here in Kitchener-Waterloo, to think about the way that we relate to our integrity. Right? Whether it's as simple as someone saying, hey, can we get together and have a coffee? I'm going through something and I want to talk to you. And then that day comes and then you're a little bit tired because work was hard. And you know this person would really appreciate to have the coffee, but you're like, ah, I just kind of want to watch the Jays game. Sorry, can't make it. So that, like, my word in the end doesn't mean anything. I'm not, making, I'm not making excuses for having moments where that might happen. I'm saying let's not elevate the cultural conversation around self-care to the point where we're not people who can make any sort of commitments or commit to anything because at the end of the day, we're most committed to our own calendar. This is the problem, right? So Jesus is like, what is going on here? We know that everybody else is relating to it like that, but we ought not to, as people of love and of grace, receiving from God's grace. So he's 
provocatively poking at all of this. I'm going to close with some good news. The good news. Remember the context of all this. Remember the audience. Remember that these are the blessed. You and I are the blessed. Remember that all of these instructions are also descriptions. This is who, by the power of God, by his indwelling spirit and by his word, God is creating you to be. This is what his grace does in you and is doing in you and will continually do to you as you turn to him. The good news of the gospel is that God is not handing, handing you a menu. Jesus is not handing you the Sermon on the Mount and saying, you've got to order off this now, but your taste buds don't want it. The good news of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit who indwells his church is causing us to be the kind of people who, as we systematically go through the descriptions of the new humanity, our hearts say, this is what I want. This is who I want to be. I want to be loving. I want to be caring. I want to be a person of congruence. I want to be a person of covenant and not convenience. I don't want to consume people in porneia. I want to be a person who is loving and caring. Oh God, would you do renewal in me? Oh God, would you change me? Maybe you're here today and you struggle with these things. But the good news is that at the cross, Jesus Christ's perfect purity cleanses you of your guilt. Now, you and I leave this place justified. I know that our day-to-day reality is we struggle, but before God, justified. Considered innocent and pure on the basis of Christ's righteous record. Let this be a motivator for us for our new humanity as we walk it out. Because God has a long track record of chasing his people down and drawing his people in and welcoming his people back. And so may we go into this city as people of integrity. May we go into this, this city as people of true righteousness. Not with the message of, I disapprove of you. But the message that my God loves you. My God will bring renewal to you. Giving a defense for the hope that we enjoy. That as we turn to Jesus Christ and we trust in his perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection, he unravels our hearts and souls out of the disintegrative trajectory. He unravels us from that trajectory into Gehenna and out into true life and true human flourishing in him. Let's pray.